Hi, Richie. Hi, Sin. Hi, everyone. We have a very special guest with us today. Say hello, special guest. Hi. Oh, it's a mystery. Who is this? We gotta give clues. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be in the title of the video. <laughs> no, maybe I'll just put special guest. People don't read. But I can tell you that this special guest, if you type Snack Covenant into the YouTube search, their name does come up as predictive text. <laughs> so maybe you should put who it is in the title to increase audience engagement. Well, maybe we're going against the grain, Richie. Yeah, we're special. That's right. Our guest is Solid Snake. <laughs> Now, now that's being too kind to me. <laughs> Loki, what are you doing here? Oh, oopsie. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> we never see Loki and Snake in the same room at the same time. Uh-oh. Doesn't Solid Snake canonically speak, like, eight languages? So he, he could, he could, you know, have a side gig translating manga, you know? Just, just whenever you buy your local light novel, just yeah. check for credits. Make yeah. sure. <laughs> Solid Snake might be in there. <laughs> okay, let's um, go. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Wait, we didn't introduce our special guest. People are still confused. <laughs> just confusing them further. <laughs> so our special guest is Loki. Hey everyone, I'm back, I think. I'll sub in for Snake. Kept you waiting. <laughs> Alright. Loki, uh, for those of us who may be listening to you for the first time, can you tell us a bit about who you are and where can we find you? I... <laughs> Well, I'm a f I'm a fan of Souls games, as people probably who have seen my work would know. And a lot of my work, at least when I come on this podcast, tends to deal with translation in Soul games, both inaccuracies in translation, how they can apply to the understanding of the lore for the most part, and how they can affect your own thoughts and maybe on your own developments on how uh, Dark Souls or Demon Souls or various hell, you could even probably apply it to Bloodborne if I ever get there on different. <laughs> Souls games, let's just say Miyazaki games, and then <laughs> try to make some sense of them. You can find me on Twitter, and you can find me on Discord. At Twitter, you can find me at Loki underscore DS, and for Discord, it will be the yes, yeah, the same. So, and also, like to clarify, Loki is spelled L O K E Y, not not like the Norse god. <laughs> Loki, can you tell us what we're talking about today? Well, this is actually a bit of a blast from the past, Sin, because we're talking about Irithyll and Sullivan and a lot of that stuff that we talked about, I think, back on the very first podcast I did with you guys. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> that could not have sounded more scripted. <laughs> Bold of you to imply anything is scripted. <laughs> Oh my god, what a bully! 
I think that's a compliment. <laughs> anyway, so the vid- the audio quality for what that when I gave you guys on that very first podcast wasn't very good and people have given me feedback saying, "Well, I'd love I'd love to understand, but I can't understand half of it because every other word would disappear." So <laughs> But that's because we're staying true to the lore. Like, you gotta fill in the blanks. Oh, I see. Well, you yeah. damn. I, I, you should have given me the memo. I would have kept up for the subsequent podcasts. <laughs> it would be, then they, people would be spending, like, 75% of the time just decoding what I said, and then 25% of the time arguing amongst themselves over whatever, whether it had any value, or whether it was just too convoluted and we should just disregard it all because it's a game. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rich is ready. He's like, okay, let's go, let's go. Okay. You guys are having too much fun. Let's get to the Lord. I can see the I can see the time passing in the corner. <laughs> All right. Okay. So for people who may not have known about this, I already got an analysis done. So this will be hopefully linked in the YouTube video description for people who are interested in reading the full thing. We're basically going to be summarizing and going through a lot of at least basic detail what it is that I I can add to it from a translation side, what I've uncovered from an analysis side, and kind of work that together to come up with maybe an interesting idea on the lore for Irithal, both politically, geographically, and all that stuff. So let's get started. Mm-hmm. There's three things in terms of background information we should know when we're talking about Irithal and Dark Souls 3 and all that. Um, first thing that we should establish is that there was a lot of undead that we knew from Undead Berg seemed to have since migrated to Irithal. I think one of the more obvious examples is Andre. Right. Um, when you encounter him and talk to him in Dark Souls 1, he is someone who's from the Berg. He's never been to Anor Londo. It's like a legendary city that you've never been to. But then when you see Andre in Dark Souls 3 and you show him the giant's coal, he acts as if, oh, he's intimately familiar with the giant now. So clearly, in between the events of the the two games um andre has gotten to know the giant on a very personal level as we know the giant lived and we find his body in dark souls 3 still at his workshop from dark souls 1 right we have shiva from the forest hunters from dark souls 1 we end up finding his corpse with his ashes on it um, and various items related to him and the hunters and things like that that you can actually collect at An Orlando as well. It's unlike one of the buttresses, if yeah, I remember yeah. right, or somewhere beneath them. Yeah. And there's several other characters, some of them are more relevant for later, but we all get this impression that characters from Undead Berg who survived the events of Dark Souls 1 ended up moving to An Orlando and becoming sort of um, absorbed into its culture. Now, keep in mind, if we remember, An Orlando was abandoned, so up until that point, it was basically just a ghost town with a bunch of guards yeah. with an otherwise empty city. Um, so, it's not unclear if this is because they want to get try to like bolster the actual populace, or if it was just kind of like, you know, Undead Berg became like an undead and a hollow-infested ruin, so like, let's kind of bring them in, <laughs> get them out of there. Hmm. <laughs> But that was just one thing that we should keep in mind. Another thing that we should always keep in mind is that um, the events between Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3 caused An Orlando itself to actually change. Now, we talked about this when talking about Heidi in another podcast, yeah. so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But the for a gist of my understanding is that in Dark Souls 2, the setting from Dark Souls 1 sort of drifted and stagnates in what we call Drang Lake. Sort of. 
they're very, they never really pin it down because you keep being told like many kingdoms have fallen and risen on this spot and you do find the, the sunlight altar there. But also like you don't really see anything that resembles apart from the, the hate area, which looks a bit like Anolon. There's also the there's also Seldora is supposedly built on some parts of where Seath did experiments it's and possible, things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's they talk about it's that the same as well. Crystals, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, well, stuff about Brightstone and things and all that. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of elements that seems to be coming in there, and I talk about that with Haiti specifically because that was one where it's the most obvious and. That's something that we should focus in on in terms of an Orlando connection is that it looks like, from my understanding and the way I put it, is that an Orlando, pieces of it suddenly drifted and disappeared. And what we ha- see in Dark Souls 3 seems to be the leftover ruins that got left behind. And those portions are sort of so disconnected, because imagine you have like a bunch of Dark Moon Knights, Painting Guardians, etc., that were just their daily business there in an Orlando, and then suddenly parts of your own city just pop up in a completely different place foreign, disconnected from the god who leads you everything. So Gwendolyn's not there, no one's there, and that seems to have developed into the Heidi civilization. When we look at Heidi then as it develops, it seems to have created a culture which helps spread and uh, leads to what we see in Lindelt and the various other countries in Dark Souls 2 that worship the various gods, but this ends up being forgotten and going under different names and mixing with cultural practices and things like that. When we when we take that in mind, we have to keep in mind, okay, what happens in the, the Dark Souls 3 setting? What happens with Anne Orlando that was left behind? So... It looks like what happened was that they decided, okay, we'll rebuild the city. Like they're not just going to be like, well, our the whole the holy city of the gods has been has like just miraculously vanished half of it. I guess we're I guess we just die now. Um, <laughs> they decide, okay, we're going to rebuild, and we see that with um, An Orlando sort of well, or Irithyll ends up kind of being a continuation. You can see that in the architecture, a lot of the same symbols or a lot of the same archways or things, a lot of those similar architectural styles yeah. end up being continued into Irithyll and are very reminiscent of An Orlando. And that was very much intentional on the developer's part, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to talk about the developer's like thing, um, straight up, like early on, it, it isn't called Irithyll, it's just called Anorlondo Ruins. So, like, yeah, it is very meant, meant to be the same as Anorlondo, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then the third factor that we need to talk about is um, there's a big shift with in terms of Gwendolyn's role in the Anorlondo Pantheon. How so? Uh, most people are familiar with Allfather Lloyd, and he gets brought up again in 3 as sort of being this character who sort of fell from grace since the events of Dark Souls 1. Right. Um, and it's sort of it's some and the and the game isn't really uh doesn't really get to at least in the English version doesn't get too direct on it as to why but it's a lot more obvious in the Japanese version and I talked about this in the original podcast this is because Lloyd has ended up being replaced by Gwendolyn as the Allfather. He sort of lost his power because Gwendolyn has now taken over. And this is something that's evidenced 
most obviously in the soul for Sullivan, where it talks about in the English version, if I recall, it was something like a god, the god of the old royal family has been locked up or whatever it says. Yeah. But it's very, it's much more specific that it's referring to the chief god. Now, right. all father in Japanese is just chief god. It isn't referring to the literal father yeah, of all yeah. or whatever have you. It's referring to the head of the pantheon of god. So like the Zeus, the Thor, yeah. etc. And this caused yeah. confusion, I remember at the time, because all father there is also Odin's title in Norse mm-hmm. mythology, so people were making like Lloyd Odin comparisons. That it's really just down to like yeah. we we don't have a word meaning chief god, so we go with Allfather. Yeah, it was yeah. it was the best one the localizers could come up with that would sound natural, and I don't blame them too much, but it just causes inaccuracies that needs to be addressed because people don't think of that typically. Mm-hmm. Now, this is important that they localize that they they forgot or whatever reason they chose to localize that out because it's a very important notification for us to tell us that when Sullivan did these actions Gwendolyn had taken Lloyd's title and it tells us a lot about what happened because if you understand this when you take into context Dark Souls 1 then you're learning that Lloyd isn't really supposed to be the all-father per actually. And this becomes very obvious by the fact that he is Gwyn's uncle. So it's supposed to stand out to you in Dark Souls 1. Okay, why is Gwyn's Gwyn's uncle the head of the Pantheon? Wouldn't there be far more appropriate people to be leading the Pantheon after, say, Gwyn? And you'd assume Gwyn was the original, you know, he's the king of the gods, he's the original, like, he's the person who would be the original chief god, whether way of white or no. So... How do we know that he's Gwyn's uncle? it's, It's said in items in the first game. And okay. it's continued in the later game. So it is, it's okay. confirmed. We know his exact relation. And that's why okay. it's important to know is that that relation is very specific and very peculiar. Because it isn't like, oh, it's his brother or it's his thing. It's his specifically his uncle, his parents' brother. And this is, this is very notable because, okay, you're Gwyn. You go and you sacrifice yourself and you're no longer king. And you pass that mantle on. Usually that would be passed on to, say, your children. Or mm-hmm. say if you want to do like a Lion King type of thing, it's your brother and yeah. then like things. <laughs> but barring no barring no children. But we have but Gwyn had children and he had heirs. Now the firstborn got kind of bumped out of the picture because of reasons. <laughs> and then but that still leaves Gwendolyn. So the que- so the question that, that should have that should be in fans' minds in terms of Dark Souls one is okay, well why well with well Gwendolyn is sort of not inheriting the role of all father publicly Gwendolyn is supposed to be down to his name is supposed to be inferred to be a goddess rather than a a male god so this cause this is the reason why Lloyd can claim that okay I as Gwyn's uncle as the uncle to the king of the gods have the most right and legitimacy to being the chief of the pantheon now I can lead the pantheon now so that gives us a lot of insight into how it works in Dark Souls 1. But come Dark Souls 3, things have changed. Gwendolyn has apparently come out and taken that role with the confidence that he can now not only lead the Pantheon, but that he is more legitimate than Lloyd. Now, we have to keep in mind what is said when it comes to Dark Souls 3 is that Lloyd is chastised as being a pretender. He presumed the role of, of the chief god. He didn't. He wasn't someone that was supposed to have it, and it specifically said that this is because of his relations. And this makes a lot of sense because we have to think about it. What makes what makes Gwendolyn uh, more viable as a a successor 
than Lloyd. And that's because, well, who are you going to pick? The king's son or the king's uncle? Usually it would be the son. So once Gwendolyn sort of come Dark Souls 3 is comes out as a man, and he's very publicly on... I um I am Gwyn's last legitimate son. I'm a legitimate god. I am his son. I have the right to succession over my over Gwyn's uncle. And once that happens, the way of white support for Lloyd seems to have basically collapsed. Now we're not told too many details about how like violent it was. Was there like a war and there was like factions or what have you? We don't really know. There's not enough indication, I don't think, in the evidence record. My take on that was always just that. Lloyd was the god of Thurland. And then when, because Thurland appears to just not exist anymore. So Way of Whites moved from Thurland to Kareem. And now that they're based in Kareem, they're worshipping Kaitha, who is the local god of Kareem. Well, Way of White exists in several places. It's yeah. even an undead burg and out doing so. So it's not like it's strictly yeah, just Thorland. Yeah, but the major clerics all come from Thurland in one. So I just in terms yeah. of that's the re- it's the religious capital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so, because Lloyd yeah. did so. Lloyd Lloyd ends up going to the world of man, and we know the other gods end up following after with him as a result as a result of sort of the power balances that go on in An Orlando. Once Lloyd once Lloyd is there, that becomes basically the center of the way of white. But right. this changes now. What we see is this changes heavily with. Um, with Gwendolyn in the throne, because we see that Karim has become a new major center. Yeah. But another center is also Irithyll. We have a lot of Way of White clergy that are coming from Irithyll, and this spreads to the Cathedral of the Deep, where they seem to ha- where where Irithyll seems to have dominion over to an extent. We obviously see stuff like uh, what's his name, Mick. Uh, God, it's slipping my head. McLoif. Not McLoif. That's the god. Um, McDonald. Right. So we have, oh yeah, we see, yeah. Like, Mick- yeah, so we see little clergy like McDonald, Aldrich, and stuff. So again, it's when we're talking about Gwendolyn and the Way of White. It wasn't like the Way of White was just in Thorland. It was a church that had control in various countries, Astora, for example, um, and that it existed. It wasn't just sort of limited, and everything came from there. For example, Anastasia was a clergywoman from Astora, and she was also like she was a legitimate Way of White cleric. So it's it's not something so much as like it's it was limited to Thorland so much as that's where Lloyd seems to have been based because it seems like the gods had their own it seems like Lloyd for example had sort of like okay whether Thorland existed before we will never know probably but he seemed to have based himself in this country of Thorland and then like goddesses like Velka for whatever reason decided okay I'm going to go to this country of Karim and then you you kind of get the idea that the gods seem to have settled or done whatever they kind of wanted from there. Yeah. Um, for Gwendolyn, though, he's always been in Anne Orlando. So when he takes over command of Lloyd's leadership of the church, seems like positions move to uh, a big positions move to uh, Irithyll. Now, Karim is interesting because you bring up Katha. Now, I make an argument in I'm actually working on another analysis to kind right. of talk about an example of this in Dark Souls 2, but there's a general analysis I talk about with Katha, and I make a conclusion that Katha is in fact Velka. It's a second identity yeah. or an alias or whatever you want to call yeah, it. I, I, I'd say something like that, yeah. 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 yeah, I think Bob the Hollow has a big theory on that as well. 
I think it's a common theory, and I, I feel let's work under that presumption then that Katha is in fact Velka, because what it tells you is that Velka and, Lo- and Lloyd were very much polar opposites. Velka was heretical in many ways. She was very much against the orthodoxy that was very prevalent among the gods. Like, she liked dabbling in dark. She liked dabbling in all sorts of magics, all old, new. It didn't matter to her. She was just a witch who liked sort of studying magic, it seems. And she was very intelligent. Now, Lloyd, of course, was all about faith. He's all about orthodoxy. We see this in how he runs the way of white in Dark Souls 1 and many various aspects of the church under his dominion. So you have a very orthodox character like Lloyd and then Velka. And we see in Dark Souls 3 that Velka has lost a lot of presence. We don't even see a single one of her priests like we do in past games. Even Dark Souls 2 has one character that represents her and her following. So she seems to have lost a lot of power, but it seems she sort of kind of leapfrogged off of that to this alternate identity. It's very convenient that just so happens that Gwendolyn comes out as a male, causes all this sort of religious upheaval, Lloyd loses power, right around the time that this goddess from Dark Souls 2, who no one has ever seen or heard from in the Pantheon from Dark Souls 1, show up and be like, oh yeah, she's now a major figure in the Pantheon, and she holds a great deal of influence, which we see, of course, at the Cathedral in its history, that we talked about in the Deep podcast, I think we did a while back, and various other elements. Velka's always a tricky one, because it's never something that you can really say with too much certainty, but it looks rather suspicious, let's say, that all of this stuff starts happening, and it just so happens to really benefit Velka's alter ego, and put her in an arguably better position than she was in originally. Because as we see, she's basically number two. Next to Gwendolyn, the Allfather, she's basically, like, sort of right below that as the most influential and popular god in the pantheon probably the only one who would rival her is guinevere to be honest if we were to argue like theoreticals can i ask another question though about this succession right because you said like guinevere is someone who can like rival velka in terms of importance popularity more so because you keep saying like after gwendolyn came out as male do you think like is that necessary or like could gwendolyn have continued like in the same position without having done that. If that was the case, then you'd think Guinevere would have taken over and not Lloyd. It looks very much like there is a a uh, a very a very much going down a male line in this, that the chief god okay. seems to do so. Because one of the things that we also have to no- notice is that when sort of the firstborn loses power... We have two characters, Gwendolyn, ostensibly a princess, and Guinevere, the eldest one. I think she calls herself a queen. Um, in the dialogue, it's princess. She's never that was a that was a yeah. She calls princess of sunlight. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. it's a localization error that she's yeah. called a queen in that one line of dialogue. So don't pay attention. That's why her her covenant's called the princess god. Yeah. yeah. It looks very much like there isn't sort of this, okay, you know, all the male heirs are gone, so let's go down the female line. It looks very much like, okay, well, all the male heirs are gone. Are there any other male relatives that could take the position? It didn't look like politically, and Orlando was a country that was like, okay, well, the women can rule now. Right. Hmm. Um, that just That just seems to be my observation there, so. Okay, yeah. So now Gwendolyn is now in charge. The... The Undead Burg has now had a lot of its populace moved over to Anorlando, and parts of Anorlando have now suddenly gone boop, 
and popped into the Drang Lake far away. And that seems to be the, oh, these three factors seem to be what end up generating the creation of Irithyll. And like I said before, Irithyll right. seems to have built up and tried to continue Anne Orlando's legacy. We see some new things to the architecture, but a lot of it is basically same old, same old in terms of the influence and inspiration. Um, one of the details worth noting is, of course, Gwendolyn rules from, um, Gwendolyn, instead of having like a big lavish palace, or anything. Like, we know there's a royal manor we explore in Dark Souls 1, for example. Yeah. Gwendolyn, however, sort of rules in a rather arguably humbler royal, um, not royal, um, humbler manor on the edge of town that we actually explore and we find silver knights yeah. there. Yeah. There are several, there are several references to the knights actually guarding this manor for the ro- royal family. So this seems to have been where all the old royals were sort of hunkered up. And this is very much in character for Gwendolyn. It seems like even though Gwendolyn has sort of, perhaps with some prodding from Velka, has sort of taken up the mantle of his responsibility as a royal of the family and the quote-unquote rightful heir, there still seems to be this hesitation, this sort of humility to his character that's still winning out in many aspects. Um, Because he's sort of living much like, like, again, it's called a city of aristocrats, of nobility, but still, it's like, you're living like, if you're royalty, you don't tend to live like the, in this, in a manner that looks almost identical to all the other ones in the, in the noble quarter, quote unquote. Um, so that's one thing. Another interesting detail we should talk about is, of course, Guinevere. Guinevere seems to have returned and rejoined the royalty. We see these statues of a crown woman sort of has this – you see her like she has like in this pose like she's um, yeah. kneeling on her legs and she kind of has this like social like as if she's talking <laughs> also, uh, and to someone. Sin, Sin noticed something about that statue mm-hmm. about two years ago. What did I notice? It was the first thing we recorded, and I actually had to reinstall Dark Souls 3 to check it. That she's got the same – it's like a a band or like a bow around her Like the little, little like, tie around ties her on arm. Arms. Yeah, yeah, that Guinevere also has. Yeah. I noticed the same thing, yeah. and that's one of the things I wanted to note, is that that seems to be an intentional yeah. detail to hint that this is a statue of Guinevere in Irithyll. She's wearing – much thicker and less revealing clothes, but then again, like if you wore what she t- t- wore in Dark Souls One in the middle of Irithyll, like holy hell! Yeah, it would be quite cold. <laughs> yeah, for the string, I said I think someone else in chat noticed and told me. I don't think that was me, from what I remember. Shh, take the compliment. It's one of the few times Richie will ever say nice things about you. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that was so cute. That's not true. <laughs> um, yeah, and I wanted so <laughs> sometimes I talk into the microphone and then I notice that it's um off. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you in case people forgot. Um, you're saying that like Gwendolyn um is male in Dark Souls three, and that's because uh I think he's referred to as Yurshka's brother, right? Yeah, yeah. So one thing that that isn't made obvious is that in Dark Souls 1, the Japanese for Gwendolyn is never actually said to be explicitly male until after you kill him. Up until that point, it's very ambiguous. It uses gender neutral or just avoids mentioning anything. Yeah, yeah. So when you meet the character, you meet this androgynous sounding voice of a god of the Dark Moon, you are perhaps expected to 
assume that this is actually a goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you hear a name like Gwendolyn, which is, of course, derivative of Gwendolyn and things like yeah. that. So it's supposed to be, everything is supposed to indicate to you that this is a goddess, a female. But then when you kill Gwendolyn in the first game, the items start being very specific. Oh, it's a guy. Mm-hmm. So, right. and that's supposed to be a very important detail, and they talk about sort of a yeah. little. They touch a little bit on Gwendolyn's um uh, gender history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, as long as that that clears that up. Yeah. Now we have Guinevere, though, who seems to have now returned to Gwendolyn, because as we recall, she left with her. She eloped with um Flan. And ended up sort of disappearing from the from the main setting, and then in Dark Souls Three, she apparently came back, and she also seems to have come back with children because, of course, we meet the dancer who yeah. is implied to be a, a um uh her daughter. Will to keep it simple, yeah, some some sort of close relative, yeah, yeah, yeah. close relative. Well, for the simplicity's sake, yeah. we'll say daughter, yeah. and then. And of course, this is something that we see in the case of both um, her soul ends up creating one of Guinevere's miracles and the way that she she's supposed to be a descendant of the old royalty. So, again, all the evidence points to that. So it looks like we don't know what happened to Flan. It's never really clarified. Did he come back with them and something happened along the way or was it while they were gone? Something happened. It's very rather vague. But from what we can see, it seems like Guinevere ended up returning to the fold. Now, Gwendolyn probably wanted that. Because Gwendolyn has always been about, from Dark Souls 1, he has always seemed to be motivated by the desire to kind of fulfill his father's wishes and bring everything back to the glory days. Try to preserve what they have and rebuild it eventually. Um, This is, of course, not something that could happen very easily, because as we learn in Dark Souls 3, pretty much all the gods are dead. (laughs) Like, even excluding um, before Gwendolyn is eaten by Aldrich and Guinevere disappears again in the Dark Souls 3 setting. We have this strange case of all the gods, for whatever reason, have ended up dying. Were they dead of natural causes? Has so much time passed that they just all died of old age? Did, like, was it a mix of things? Did some die of old age? Did some die in some conflict? Again, we don't really know the details. So it's very vague on that that. Um, that account. However, we do know that they have been intermixing with humans because there's one of the new races that is introduced in Dark Souls 3 is called the, in English, the Erythilian. But in Japanese, it's more accurate to call it a sign of Erythil or a, like a, a mark. And the idea is being that you have traits that indicate that you have blood of the old gods. Right. So you have an An Orlando god's blood running in your veins, which indicates that you are a distant descendant of that god. So it seems like at some point, the gods of An Orlando ended up intermixing with some of their human worshippers. There could be various explanations or circumstances yeah, for that. Yeah. And then during that point, it eventually came to you. And you're now some nobody in, say, some village. But you have face traits that resemble that of an Anorlando god. Now, the gods I always talk about as them being their own race, which I call the medials. That's the term I've coined for them. So it's like, okay, a medial and a human have children. It eventually leads to this human with some medial-like traits. Word gets around. Eventually, Irithyll hears of this, and then they seem to send people out to pick up those people and bring them back to the valley. So 
and as we know, um, Irithyll is a country of nobility. So what it sounds like is that all of these humans who still have the divine blood, Gwendolyn was collecting this blood and trying to gather and coalesce it back in his new Anne Orlando, Irithyll. And it was going to be sort of this trying to recreate and preserve the city of the gods as best he could because you know you have that holy divine blood in you so you can't just live like as some nobody you have to be brought and live like nobility and be Hmm. given your proper respect that seems to be what was going on in terms of how irithel got its population Now, one of the things that makes this interesting in terms of the idea that the medials have now gone extinct is that there comes a question now of, okay, so if all the gods are sort of dying out, like, was Gwendolyn's intention to, like, try to have all the humans here, and then were they supposed to be served by, say, the undead, like, say, Andre, like we used before, who worked in Undead Berg? How exactly was this supposed to work in terms of like a functioning society? And it's not, it's very vague. Like, for example, we don't know if, say, Aldrich or McDonald, were they also descendants with this god blood in them? Or were they, for example, just some random peasants who visited and they just joined the clergy or were they transferred out? Like, it's never really clarified because it just says, oh, they're of the Boreal Valley. Does that mean they were born there? We don't really know. But it's something interesting to think about when it comes to Irithyll's history. Now, of course, the last thing that we shouldn't be remiss in talking about is the climate. <laughs> so Irithyll's a bit odd in terms of there's a temperate forest, and then you get to Irithyll, and it's this freezing cold, ice-cold valley. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you start in Australia, and you end up in Canada in winter. <laughs> So there's two ways to think of this. Either one from software just is really taking liberties with climate and temperature. And this is just some freak weather phenomena. Let's not think too hard about it. But if you want to think hard about it and think there's some unnatural or supernatural quality to it, there is a possibility. I can, I can say like, that's pretty like explicit in everything that the, the snow in Aerithil is not natural. Because you find there's these jars around that just apparently have, like, the essence of cold in them. And, like, when Vort shows up, he's leaving, like, ice and frost behind him, even though, like, he's in mm-hmm. he's in Lothric. But also, Sullivan was born in the painting, right? Which is pretty cold. Yeah, and he ends up creating sorceries that also make use of the cold. So it's something you could make the argument that not that they it's like you could make the argument the cold predates magic that creates the cold, for example. Now, if you want to make the other argument that cold magic ends up creating the cold weather you see in the painting, that's one thing I can make an argument for because we have to think of okay, well, if someone decided, okay, let's just shroud the the this city in cold weather, and we know it's ha- it seems to be one, it seems to be something that's lasted for a while because we see a lot of quote unquote um, indigenous sort of plants and animals that seem to sort of derive or base themselves on like this yeah. cold weather. Like for example, the uh, green blossoms have their own variant that actually blooms in the cold weather. Specifically, it has to be cold, but not yet frozen water. So there is examples that there is something, this isn't like, oh, this suddenly happened, or this just happened like, oh, in a few years, we just suddenly added this. This is something that has been like Irithyll's environment for a very long time. So it has to be somewhat, so like, if there was some force, I think one theory was that somehow the cold got out of the painting world, it's shrouded, and it's been like that, or something like that. 
um, so let's think of like a force or um, something like that has to have caused this dramatic climate change. And then that force has to have been very old, been around there very early on. It has to be a force that is very powerful in order to cause something on this scale. And it has to be someone that has a good motive or reasoning direction to have caused this. So what my my theory is that Gwendolyn is the source of this. We know he's a powerful sorcerer. Um, we know that he's someone who's been around Irithyll basically yeah. since his inception. And we know he could have a motive, actually, for why he wants to do this. And that motive, I think, could be linked to his half-sister, Yorshka. Yorshka is that odd character. It's Richard's favorite character. <laughs> Richard's favorite character. But Yorshka is that character. She's like Priscilla in that she is a white-scaled dragon crossbreed. She's also someone who's said to be Gwendolyn's younger sister. So Gwendolyn is Gwyn's last child. He's the youngest child of the family. This, the games in Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3 are very sp- explicit about that in the Japanese script. Yeah. So there's no thing like, oh, Yorshka is Gwyn's secret, like, illegitimate child or something like that. No, 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 no. Gwendolyn is still the last born. What this tells us, though, is that Gwendolyn and Yorshka have different fathers, but they have the same mother in order to be related, assuming, like, adoption isn't in play here. What a twist! <laughs> the twist. This, of course, leads to the obvious conclusion about Priscilla and being the parent, being the the mother in question. And we know that the painted world, a lot of things have gone down. Priscilla is now seemingly dead as of the events of the Dark Souls Three. Um, the painting world has obviously been under new management for a while. It's, I guess, technically a new painting at this point, right? So. Yeah, a lot has happened um, to the painting world, and we know that for whatever reason, Yorshka has left. Now, what's interesting is that both Yorshka and the only other child of Priscilla, seemingly that we meet, are two dragon crossbreeds who don't didn't have names originally. Yeah, which is, very, which is an interesting detail. Um, Yorshka only gets her name after Gwendolyn takes her in. And one of the, one of the two things that is that is also of course interesting is that well both of them seem to have, have very similar circumstances in their backgrounds yet one of them stayed presumably because she seems to have been tasked with being the painter but the other one left and one of the things that are worth talking about is that the church of Yorshka which seems to be built in the exact same location the painting building had been in Dark Souls 1. Like, if you go to the Anne Orlando platform and take the little, what do you call it, the corkscrew, uh, like elevator a rotation. Thing. Yeah, the yeah. elevator, I guess it would be. It's a lift of some sort. Um, it would it would take you directly to the Church of Yorshka, and um, where you would originally have walked into the painting building, and that seems yeah. to have been again very much intentional. Now, one of the interesting details is that outside there is a graveyard, and that graveyard is where um, you find various like small graves, but then there's this big grave. And this big grave actually has a Corvian praying to it. Now, the things we know about the Corvines is they're crow people who worship Velka and are twisted into their form out of their devotion to her. 
and it ends up becoming in Dark Souls 3 a sort of religious, I don't know if it's a scripture, but they talk about it as like the heretical mythologies of the of the crow men who seem to have come out and they're teaching these various um forlorn um, rejected souls how to become these crow men and then some of them end up in the painting world when we eventually go there and we meet one um and we as we see the crow men have created their own society as of dark souls 3 they have towns they have villages they have churches and all of it's focused on this worship of not just velka but also priscilla so it's very interesting that this corvian is praying to a giant grave and as we know priscilla herself was of course much larger than the average person. <laughs> so this leads me to believe that this actually is Priscilla's grave. And we also see some smaller graves that are connected to it. These may be related to Yorshka's other family, possibly. But to focus in on just the big grave, we're talking about the idea that it looks like it may be that Yorshka had come out of the painting to tell the only other living relative, Gwendolyn, that what happened to their mother. Um, and it seems she's been given a burial there, and to this day there's even those who worship and respect Priscilla that are going to pay their respects to that grave. So, just to clarify, so basically you're saying that Priscilla is the mother of Gwendolyn and Yorshka? To be absolutely clear, that is exactly what I'm saying. Whoa! So yeah, so Gwendolyn would be the son, is the son of Gwyn and and Priscilla, and then we don't know who Yorshka's father is, at least explicitly. I think I've seen some theories speculate on it being Ariandel, but as far as we, at least as far as I'm, as I've determined, I haven't seen anything to convince me one way or the other with a good enough uh, certainty. And do you think the painting girl is also Priscilla's daughter? Yes, she talks a lot about her mother. Um. Mm-hmm. She actually says a few things talking about that she does have a mother and that this mother gives her advice on what to do when it comes to the painting and the outsiders and things like that. Of course, she like Yorshka, she is shown to be a dragon crossbreed, white scale, same thing. It seems very clear in that regard. Um, some fans may be wondering if, say, Gale is somehow related to her, um, but the term he uses, Uncle Gale, Oji-san, yeah. etc., it's used a lot for older men who you respect or love, not necessarily your literal uncle or grandpa or or any type of older male figure who you could respect. So again, I don't know who the father is, but it's not Gwyn, and it's it's compl- someone completely different. But that's really interesting, because a lot of theories surrounding Gwendolyn's parents have something to do with, like, Gwen and someone, or Gwen commissioning Seath to like make him a like a child, you know, through experimentation. And you're saying no, it's Priscilla and Gwen. So yes, just to be clear, yes, what I'm saying is Gwen, Priscilla, Gwen and Priscilla had Gwendolyn, and then later down the line, Priscilla seems to have created her own family that sired Yorshka and the painter girl. And now it seems like since Priscilla's death, Yorshka seems to have come out and brought out to Gwendolyn and sort of been taken in as a result, given a name, given a little holy bell, and sort of treated as sort of like, I guess, like as, I don't know if I want to say like a surrogate father, but basically she he's adopted her into his um, family, even though they probably have never met before that. Right. 
Okay, so then back on track to what when we were talking about with the climate, it's it's p- completely possible then, considering the the respect that Gwendolyn seems to show to his mother, he seems to have treated her with respect. He treats his obviously his younger sister with a lot of respect, and one of the the things he may have done for her may have been to make the country more habitable because as we know Yorska is very sheltered <laughs> she was not she's never really known what the outside world was like so she obviously her idea of you somehow flying up and being able to get to a high place is you have to be a crow or a dragon the yeah. only things that you could really you could have found in the painting yeah, world in yeah. either dark souls 1 or 3 so there, she has this very narrow idea of what the world is like so it may have been that she's in such an unfamiliar place she doesn't know she kind of just came out here maybe on a whim maybe because she just wanted to meet her estranged brother there could be various possibilities but well, it, the, uh, the other one is that when you dispel the illusion in dark souls 1 either by killing Gwendolyn or the Guinevere illusion. The sun disappears from the sky and it goes to this like nighttime and you can see like the lighting has become much colder. So I just assume that the coldness in Irithyll is just that, like the gods are gone, so the illusion is gone. So it's reverting back to being cold again because it used to be the city of the sun and now we don't have a sun anymore. Well, you could argue that in Dark Souls One, that's also just that's na- that's just the natural because it's showing that it's the sun is setting in An Orlando originally, and yeah. you can argue when you kill it, they're just doing a scene change to distinguish between the invadable, like the one where you get in, you get brought in as a Dark Moon Knight to invade and hunt down the people who broke the illusion. Yeah, but like stuff disappears as well, like the Silver Knights go away. The um some of the like enemies disappear. So it's like a ton of this city probably didn't actually exist. And maybe that includes the climate that you see in one. Well, you could argue that they're doing that mostly for gameplay purposes though, because of the invasion and stuff like that. So like, for example, if you were again, so for my take, for example, I think it's more so it's just natural because they don't do a day night in cycle in dark souls. So it's not that there's an illusion. It was bright and now it's gone. I think it's more so just the idea was, okay, what's a good way to symbolize that you are now being hunted by the dark moon and it can distinguish it from the other version that makes it very easy from a gameplay perspective. Okay, let's just have it where the sunset finally goes to nighttime and it's supposed to be oh it's just coincidental, I think. It That's an argument like that one, it happens in like two seconds though. Like you see it the like it changes while you're standing in the room. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, so say. I I'd, I'd say like the way I always interpreted it was just that Gwendolyn was keeping like the Guinevere illusion is not real, obviously. The sun isn't real, a ton of the like guards aren't real. It's all like disappeared. Gwendolyn is keeping that going. And um, when Gwendolyn's illusion is dispelled, like it just goes, like it was already night because Gwyn's gone and the Age of Fire is ending. And now, well, but it's all, it's daytime outside the city before you yeah. enter too. And yeah, it's fine. So I, yeah, I, I, I think it's more so it's just natural right. and it was coincidental. Right. Personally, I think I, I don't know. I don't. Th- I think the enemies were real and they were always there and they're fine. Like there's no other indication they're illusion because again, the illusion of like Guinevere is like you just like poker. She's gone. Yeah. The other enemies are definitely real, and they're yeah. hitting you and things like that. Again, I just I don't. Yeah. I think it's more natural than that. I th- I also I think what we we what's a better like a, in terms of like the core is that we know Gwendolyn's a powerful sorcerer. Yeah, we know he's strong. We know everything works. We also know that um, 
if I recall correctly, even killing Gwendolyn doesn't dispel the illusion, actually. Uh, you have to actually kill that still manually. Because um, I think you can kill... I think you can kill... I think you have to kill them separately. No, you can kill them separately. But, um... Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of... it's the same. He's a powerful sorcerer. It acts independent even if he dies, like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think the big... The... the what I, what we're trying to to get to the point of what I'm trying to get at here is I think that he's the perfect individual to have caused this this snowy climate, right? And he has a good enough reason if you think about okay, he has a sister who's not familiar with the area, or maybe he himself is sort of nostalgic for his mother's homeland somewhat maybe yeah. um but i think it's more so the sister which he clearly adores he clearly seems to adore and treat yorshka very well throughout the game and you can see this even down to his bitter end we can talk about that a little later um that he definitely seems to hold uh, a deep affection for his sister that he wants her to be happy so this may have been done just to make her feel more comfortable with this sort of new homeland she sort of stumbled her way into that is so cute. So Gwendolyn's like, I love you so much. I'm going to freeze the entire town for you. <laughs> Someone make a comic of that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want for Christmas? My home. And then like, he just goes to all the silver knights. Stop all the snow you can gather. <laughs> just co- oh. cover all the street houses. <laughs> That is so cute. Uh, and so that's so that's my take. If you want to go for the less, it's it's not really some weird super uh, weird natural phenomenon. It's actually got some magic behind it. Um, so we've talked a lot about that. Then another thing that we should talk about, of course, is the actual kind of theme that you actually see in Irithyll. When you take like, there's the one element which, of course, is Gwendolyn, which is the moon and the dark moon, and then there's the other element which is the cold. Now it seems like Miyazaki and company were very much trying to combine these two elements because um, maboroshi, which is a word that generally means illusion in most contexts, like the illusory walls or say the illusion of Guinevere. When it comes to Irithyll, it's usually something that you translate as something else, like maybe ethereal or fantastical right. or something that's sort of unreal, so to speak, less than than strictly illusion. Um, so, for example, the dancer's veil with sort of that kind of translucent, kind of otherworldly look it has to it. That's something where Maboroshi comes into play. Um, you also see it used, for example, with like the blossoms I mentioned before. They're supposed to have this kind of, I think the english is like uh, says it translates as like an ethereal i think it is yeah um yeah an ethereal flower or something to that so again you kind of get these constant references to this sort of um otherworldly unreal thing now these are obviously words that are often used in association with the moon the moon is ethereal it's kind of otherworldly it's sort of unreal there's always this fantastical quality attributed to it um, mm-hmm. So that makes a lot of sense in that regard. But one of the words in Japanese actually is, in fact, um, gengetsu, which actually combines the kanji for both moon and illusion together. And it refers to oh, what's the it's this it's what's the scientific word? Uh, Paraseline, I think it is called Paraseline phenomena. Um, which is basically, from what I understand, moonlight refracting through like. Um, ice in the atmosphere, like oh, right, ice crystals right. yeah, in the atmosphere, like an and it causes basically like this super shining yeah, moon, right. if I okay, recall yeah, correctly, yeah, something yeah. to that effect. 
And that seems to be the idea they had, is they wanted to kind of take this idea of combining cold with moon and sort of create Irithyll aesthetically. And we can see that in, like, everywhere. Like, there's always this sort of, this sort of, like, um, this, what's, I don't want to say clean, but this sort of, there's a lot of silvers and blues and grays, and um, there's a lot of, like, sort of flowing and thin bits, and there's a lot about um, curves that go into Irithyll that really kind of try to emphasize those two elements. So that's something, just a little bit of translation trivia that might be interesting to you. Um, but into into actually something more relevant to the actual lore is actually... Um, the Sunless Realms. Now, Richard, we had this conversation, actually, and you thought this sounded very obvious, but I've had experiences where I've seen heard people who, who it wasn't so. So this is actually something that might be informative for people. Um, so one of the things that I conclude is that Sunless Realms and Irithyll are one in the same. Yeah. Look at Richie. Did you hear that? Well, but, yeah. Like, who does, <laughs> I, I, confu- I thought it was obvious. I didn't think it was like meant to be a mystery like Cir- Cirrus is a dark moon she dresses like the dancer she's from the sunless realm yeah. um there's a place that they all come so- from where there's the whole point is there's no sun so like i just thought okay that's just another name for irithyll i well, one of the things I think might confuse people is that it's specifically sunless realms, plural, that they use in the English. So that might confuse people a lot because they're like, what is it, yeah. like a confederation? I, I, yeah, I can't say – I won't speak on people's behalf. Maybe people in the comments can give their perspective. Back when Rich and I just started talking, uh, right after I found out his JSF, I was like, oh my god, I have some questions to ask you. Do you have like five yeah. minutes? I just need to know these things. Yeah. I can't sleep at night. And he was like, sure. And I'm like – Okay, what's the sunless realms? I don't remember that. <laughs> and he was like, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. And you were like, no, you were really nice about it. You were like, well, and you explained it. And you're like, you know how in Dark Souls 1, the sun disappears and blah, blah, blah. And then in Dark Souls 3, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Well, in Dark Souls, well, I can clarify a bit in more detail is because the Japanese name is more literally country of right. nightfall rather than sunless realms. So it's supposed to be a singular country and it's supposed to be not necessarily sunless so much as nightfall, which is we, we, like to be very specific in this case, we're talking about the the very latest stage of twilight right before the sun is completely gone from the sky. Like there's no sunlight mm. left. So we're talking like that's that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about nightfall. And that's relevant because it's very it's a very obvious allusion to the dark moon. Because the idea of the dark moon is it's always portrayed. It's not portrayed as a new moon, which is a actual like the moon's just completely covered. There's no light because the idea is that there's dark moon light, and the difference is supposed to be that we're basically given a crescent moon, but the crescent is basically just short of being a new moon, so it's mostly dark, but there's just a sliver of light reflecting off the moon from the sun, and that creates the dark moonlight, and it's less, it does have to do with power of the moon so much as sort of the quality of the magic based on the phase of the moon, if we want to be specific. Um, but this, you obviously can see the same idea. It's just a sliver. It's just short of being total darkness. Nightfall is just short of being night. So, like, this same idea seems to be of evoking the image of the dark moon with the sunless realms as this country of nightfall. Um, and like Richard said, same aesthetics. Another thing to point out is that the um, flame witches you encounter were originally yeah. holy paladins or holy knights. 
Um, and we, of course, know the Sunless Realms had paladins or holy knights in theirs, because, um, yeah. what's his name, Hodric was once one of them. Again, and when we're thinking of holy knights, we're, of course, thinking of a very religious place. Like I said before, Gwendolyn is the new Lloyd. He's the Allfather. He's the head honcho of the Way of White. The church basically is ba- is supposed to be based where he is. So, again, makes sense to have holy knights or paladins here, similar to how Thorland was where originally we saw um, holy knights like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Leroy uh, show up in Dark Souls 1. So, same idea. Um... This also seems to come with the implication that the quote-unquote nameless moon is Gwendolyn, then, because we see Cirrus evoke. Well, actually, I can't. Cirrus evokes just the idea of the moon, but a lot of item descriptions talk about this idea of the nameless moon. And it seems to me this this is probably Gwendolyn, and it's interesting that he uses this moniker um, because we actually don't ever hear Gwendolyn's name used aloud. Outside of Yorshka, who's, of course, very close to him, knows him on a very personal level. So it looks like, to me, that perhaps Gwendolyn doesn't seem to be using his name. So that may be influencing why Nameless Moon seems to be the, the, the common name being used here. Again, I don't know why Sunless Realms is another name, possibly, for Irithyll. There's It's already referred yeah. to, though, as the Boreal Valley. It doesn't seem like the name gets used too much, so maybe that's just another alias. And it just so happened to be used. Another thing that should be pointed out, though, and I pointed this out with Richard, too, is that Irithyll doesn't get name-dropped in the game at all outside... Like, character creator, when you're creating mm-hmm. the quote-unquote Irithyll um, face type... It's technically there, but they never explicitly connect Boreal Valley to Irithyll, so you could argue that it's not obvious just from without context. But the actual name Irithyll doesn't show up in any items or anything until you defeat the Deacons of the Deep, I think, and get the Silver Doll. And then from that point forward, NPCs and items start using it. It's interesting because the devs were so thorough, they even made, if you kill the Dancer, which is a completely optional fight and most people probably aren't going to do it because she's obviously, you have to kill Emma and then you have to beat the boss, which is obviously designed for like mid-game and not for um, when you're just starting the game. But even if you kill Emma, kill the dancer, and go all the way up to the archives where you're hard locked from continuing until you defeat all the lords because you need the key. Um, even then, when you defeat a um, one of the Boreal Knights, you can't actually see the name Irithyll referenced. It's not until you kill the Boreal Knight in the Grand Archives after, again, the hard lock where you've already been to Irithyll, that Irithyll gets mentioned there. So again, it's always trying to kind of use Boreal Valley or Sunless Realm. So that seems to be the developer mentality to it. I don't know why. It seems kind of inconsequential whether you name drop it early or not. I don't know what they were expecting personally, but maybe someone else is noticing something I don't. Well, I guess like it's it's Irithyll of the Boreal Valley. So they could be implying that there's other places in the Boreal Valley. I don't know. Because you can see, like, forests maybe. and stuff in the distance, so maybe the Boreal Valley is, like, a much broader area, and it's not specifically Irithyll. You're specifically going to Irithyll, which is in it. Yeah, but whenever they use the the euphemism, like, if they talk about, oh, it's a knight of the Boreal Valley, well, yeah, it's a knight from Irithyll. Like, 
So, like, again, I think I, I don't know what oh, maybe wait. was supposed to be wait, a bigger wait, wait. thing, and they were like, no, you don't. You you, you can you get yeah. an Aerithil reference on the way to Aldrich because you if you beat the the outrider in the church, it drops the Aerithil sword. Because I remember getting it on, I remember getting it on stream and thinking Aerithil was a kind of metal, like Mithril from Lord of the Rings, and it's like, oh cool, I got a sword made of Aerithil. And then someone in the chat said, "No, that's a place." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." Let's <laughs> see, Urethil straight sword. Yeah. So again, it's very weird. I don't know why they were so specific on not name dropping it uh, uh, up until that point. Well, I guess it's like Bloodborne does a similar thing where there's a location that's called Old Yarnum, but then they also just call it the Hamlet in mm-hmm. the Valley. And they just alternate between those two names to the point where some people thought it was referring to two different places. But it's like... So do you think maybe they were intending to be vague about what Irithyll was exactly until you actually had to go there? And then they were like, oh, it's actually a place. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it it's like... So weird. You know, if you said, like, Richard's from Australia, and then you came to visit me, and then the title card came up and it said Ballarat, <laughs> Victoria. Like, n- neither one's incorrect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, like, it has, um, I think from memory there's four different English writers on it, so they may have, like, they may have just had different ideas about how oh, to no, do this it. Oh, is, no, this is in the, no, this is in the JP text, too. I'm not, like, I'm, yeah, I'm, see, I'm oh, speaking okay, from right, both right, scripts. Yeah. Like, this, from the original script, this has always been a thing. Right. So that's why I'm saying, I don't know what the devs yeah. were trying to intend from there. Because you could get the, yeah. you could argue it that you wouldn't know from what you said in the Undead Settlement and from the opening of the game. I just don't understand what would be the point because it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. Like it'd be different if it was like, oh, yeah. you're going to An Orlando and that's the Boreal Valley. Like that would make me de- big deal. But the name Irithil means nothing to you up until that point. As as close to release as like the the alpha. It is, I think, actually called an Orlando. Like, it's not called Irithyll. So maybe that's why that... It might be a relic of, like, an earlier draft. You would have gone there and it, it, like, it just said, like, the name of that area is straight up an Orlando Ruins. And there's, like, a note, like, one of the removed um, epitaph things at the start that says, like, we will always remember the shining city of the Mm -hmm. sun or something. So it's something along those lines. So there's straight up it's an Orlando the second you arrive. So that it may have been an earlier draft of the script where they were trying they didn't want it Irithil wasn't a place and they didn't actually want to say where you were going, just you were going to the valley. And then the reveal would be when you got to the valley it was an Orlando. But then they change it up so Irithil's the city and an Orlando is just the top part. Mm-hmm. It may have been something like that. Yeah, we'll we'll probably never know. So let's move on then. But that's a good thing yeah. to keep in mind. That's yeah. a good thing that we talked about. Uh, so I think that covers everything though with Sunless Realms because you brought up a lot of the major points I would have talked about as well. So I think we can move on now to the second element, which in Irithil's history, because now we now we're talking about we've talked about a lot of like the origin, the background, and how it was built up and became the city it is. So I think we can all agree then that. Um, Gwendolyn takes over. He has some people from Undead Burg. He's rebuilding a city that's kind of half disappeared. That kind of half disappeared. Um, he tries to continue and expand the culture that was originally there. And then, uh, you, you mentioned this too is that Cirrus, for example, is a perfect example of, um, the Dark Moon Knights, which are 
of course, obviously, when you're you're bought when you're when the god of your little cult becomes the head of the pantheon, you're obviously going to get much more yeah. important um, as things go. <laughs> um, but now we get to move on to later in the history. It seems like there was, a, as we know, in Dark Souls Three, there seems to be at some point where the setting from Dark Souls One, which we knew as Katarina, Karim. Uh, Lordran with Anne Orlando and and etc. Those places have ended up sort of meeting the quote unquote new world from Dark Souls Two. We have um, Marah and um, Drang Lake and various other uh, countries and lands from that game that have all kind of gotten back in contact and sort of meshed somewhat culturally in Dark Souls Three. Um, so for one, so for one example, yeah. we have um, just an easy one. We see that in Gwendolyn's Manor that I talked about earlier. There's the picture. We have three paint pictures that are all related to a child of madness. There's the portrait of Nishandra. There's the two pictures, which were, I think were concept art for um, Broom Tower and uh, Ilium Lois. Yeah. So, uh, is Gwendolyn a pet? Uh, it's either L.A.M. Lois or the church, I can't remember. But yeah, I, I think it is L.A.M. Lois, yeah. 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 So we have, so we have three, so all of these connect to a child of madness. So it seems like Gwendolyn heard stories about these children of madness, and he was interested enough that he's hanging pictures of them in his, in his, in his, uh, in his foyer. So it's something that's on his mind. Um, another good example is we find a witch tree branches, which are supposed to come from quote unquote the north. Um, which obviously in Dark Souls 2 we knew that witch trees and and I think there was also like I think they were called an English saint tree something to that effect. Um, yeah, the saint trees yeah, are in there. Yeah. yeah, and the idea was that there were these trees that had a lot of magic power in them, and you can kind of uh, create uh, bell. You can create these holy bells or uh, sorcery staffs from them, and so that seems to be an example of something that's ended up in Irithyll. Another one is we see the the paladin the Holdric's holy night shield is the Mirage shield from Dark Souls 2, and it seems to have been for uh, repurposed as one of their shields. I don't know, Mirage's got to get better copyright law or something, because like, people keep stealing their shit. <laughs> <laughs> they should get YouTube to do it for them. <laughs> YouTube to do for them, but it's like in, in two, it's like you, you get you, you get this blacksmith and all his stuff is stolen with the metal he makes and everything, and they steal it. And now you've got like, look, I, okay, I get it. Gwendolyn's like the big god, okay? So maybe maybe you're afraid to like sue like fucking god. I, I get, I can get that maybe, but like, come no. on, man. <laughs> I have something very important to say. Corvo is here and he says hi. Hi. Hi, Corvo. Okay, go on. <laughs> Moving on. Um, and then uh, the Drang Knights, for example. We know the Drang Knights. We see them a lot in um, the Cathedral of the Deep. We talk about that in, the, in a deep podcast we did. But before that, it seems like the Drang Knights were there under the auspices of Irithyll. And this may be kind. Uh, this may be similar to like in terms of. Pontiff Sullivan to like the Vatican and um, Swiss Guard, the Swiss Guard, and sort of the idea of hiring mercenaries. But the Drangnites seem to be these um, mercenaries who descend from Drang Lake's uh, populace, at least so far as they claim, and then sort of have inherited Drang Lake's culture and sort of wear it and fight with it as mercenaries. Um, 
and one of the big points being made is actually that they are from the land where the fire linking tradi- from of where the fire linking tradition originated quote unquote so it seems like there's this a lot of pride going on for that so it it looks to me like it seems like either Sullivan or possibly even before Sullivan um the Drang knights were in fact hired as mercenaries with for Irithyll and there's a lot of motivation they could have obviously the the An Orlando pantheon is a big proponent of the fire linking ritual tradition so they may feel a sort of connection to kind of like hey we can work for the people and we can feel more integral to our our legacy and our heritage etc cetera, etc cetera. so that may be going in and then as we know they go to the cathedral of the deep they go they, there's possibly they get involved with demons in the in, in down below with Smoldering Lake, and their history sort of falls apart from there <laughs> until they end, until we see the two survivors who've come back to Irithyll as serving Aldrich. But that seems to be another example we can look toward toward um, Drang Lake culture sort of meshing with the culture we knew from Lordran. And then one of the things we also know is the Way of Blue and the Blue Sentinels seem to have obviously come from Drang, um, from DS2, and they're ser- sort of serving a dual role with the Dark Moon Blades, which is very interesting. Um, now, the Way of Blue have always been sort of like this sort of kind of a passive organization so far as like, hey, are you a Way of Blue member? Okay, you get protection. <laughs> but the uh, the Blue Sentinels seem to have gone through a bit of an identity crisis. Now, as I mentioned before, is the idea was that the the and Dark Souls Three points this out is that the Blue Sentinels were originally Dark Moon Knights. Now I point this out with Heidi is the idea is that you have these Dark Moon Knights, you have these painting gardens, you have all these people from An Orlando that suddenly just kind of appear and they create their own civilization that ends up forgetting itself over time. It seems as part of that the Dark Moon Knights that ended up in Heidi ended up developing into the Blue Sentinels because this is where they originate, and as we know, the Blue Sentinels spread to other countries in Dark Souls Two. It looks like, though, they have a bit of an identity crisis because, well, now they've they've recontacted the mothership, so to speak, and it's like, okay, well, do the way of blue want to be protected by the kind of the the generic version that's sort of forgotten its purpose over the centuries? Or do they want to go with the originals, which were where the blue sentinels came from? So it's sort of this interesting thing, and it looks like they worked out sort of a compromise so far as the Blue Sentinels are able to help and do a lot of the heavy lifting, partially because it seems like their organization is obviously not bound by the Dark Moon anymore, because even though they were originally Dark Moon Knights, it seems that element sort of has sort of what's the word, um, weathered away and sort of been watered down to just, okay, you just join the Blue Sentinels. If you're a a God-fearing man or woman, you can join up. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, of course, obviously very beneficial for an organization like the Dark Moon Knights, who are obviously the very few in number, relatively speaking. They are obviously this very secretive cult, and they're very focused on doing whatever Gwendolyn specifically wants them to do. And they can't just be going around just, like, teleporting in to help out um, whenever some random schmuck is getting invaded. So it looks like the Blue Sentinels may have been signed on to be like, hey, you can continue kind of guarding the way of Blue because you guys have more manpower or more potential manpower than we can, and we got our other duties serving the Chief God. That seems to be what's how it worked out, but it's an interesting little development for kind of you have like... <laughs> You're a strange, like, kind of brother organization sort of come back into the fold, so to speak. Hmm. 
Uh, so I think that covers a lot of that with the DS2 stuff. And then we can now get into the stuff that I think a lot of people would be interested in, which is Sullivan. <laughs> so last time we talked about this, there isn't too much really to say except for details, because most of the actual content has been pretty much the same from the first time we did this podcast. But one of the things I talk about is that Sullivan, um, Sullivan wasn't... Um, wasn't something that kind of showed up with Aldrich. Sullivan came before Aldrich, and it was in more relation to his personal role with Gwendolyn. Because as we know, Sullivan was a young sorcerer in in the painting world. He didn't really like the painting world. It wasn't really a place for him, so he ends up leaving. And when he leaves, he ends up in Irithyll. Well, okay, how does he end up in Irithyll? Well, see, there's... I mean, you can make several arguments, like perhaps he heard where Yorshka gone and he decided he'd follow after her. Maybe he was just interested in Gwendolyn specifically because obviously he's a powerful sorcerer. He's the chief god. It's what we, what Sullivan is portrayed when he's young as sort of this sort of, what's the word? Um, not a prodigy, but, uh, a very, uh, accomplished. Yeah, accomplish an innovative young soul because, as we see, he sort of he's very in, he's very inquisitive about the world around him. Like he's always been interested in sorcery, as we as we know he you t- he exam- observed the cold of the painting and created frozen weapon and these cold sorceries even before he left. So he's always someone that seems to have been like an accomplished, talented sorcerer. So it may just be that. The painting world, it's like, you're holding me back. I need to go out into the greater world that you're all sort of fear-mongering about and sort of study and understand much more about the universe, so to speak. And this seems to be something that's consistent because we see from later developments where his interests in sort of magic brought into even less uh, favorable areas for much of the world. But that may be his motivation, and that could give us an idea why he drifts to Irithyll, because perhaps he's like, oh, you know, there's this powerful god who's also a sorcerer, I can, maybe I can learn a lot from him. And we do see that he may be trying to ingratiate himself with Gwendolyn. Um, one of the things I talk about is the Golden Ritual Spear. So um, we see, quote-unquote, Aldrich... Gwendolyn, uh, Gwendolyn, though, in effect, wielding one of these spears. And we find another one in the cathedral, where all the Gwendolyn statues, and of course, where the center of the Way of White seems to have been for at least Irithyll's branch. These spears are interesting because they're said to have been donated or gifted to the Dark Moon Knights, and specifically for Gwendolyn, because, well, what do you create a, uh, a sorcery staff that uses faith um, for, unless it's for. Um, the one guy who makes use of those. So it seems like when they're talking about Dark Moon Knights, we're specifically talking about Gwendolyn. But this is an interesting detail because it's specifically gifted. So this means it's not a Dark Moon Knight, oh, we created this and we're giving it to the god we worship. It's an outside third party who gifted it to this organization for their chief, for their chief god. And that's very interesting because it's like, okay, well, who made it? And I believe that to be actually Sullivan. I think Sullivan actually created this item as a way to ingratiate himself to Gwendolyn. Because one thing we have to keep in mind is this staff is very clearly modeled after the one that Gwendolyn has in Dark Souls 1. Yeah. The, the, the tin staff that he used. But that staff was 
much more intricate. It had all these fine details. It was very organized and symmetrical, and everything sort of had its place. It seemed like it was created by a master craftsman. Now you look at the Golden Ritual Spear, it's kind of shaken, it's kind of misshapen, it's malformed. It looks a little bit more amateurish. Part of that, I think, is just for practicality's sake, because of Aldrich and the theme that they're going with him. But in terms of like talking about the lore more broadly, it may be an additional hint to the idea that this was not some expert in metallurgy. This was just Sullivan, some random schmuck, a young guy who wants to learn sorcery from a very powerful sorcerer. He wants to get in his good graces, so he kind of creates something that would appeal to that sorcerer. It also explains why Sullivan still has this in the cathedral, because we have to think about this. Sullivan, later on, will go, go on to exterminate the Dark Moon Knights and basically drive them out. Um... And he gets rid of pretty much any dissidents or anything that could be used against him. Yet he's keeping this staff in a mimic, and mimics are typically used, We, at least in Tarxels 1 and 3, are typically used to indicate something that has a very a, a closeness to the individual that puts them in there. Like, either it's a security chest, and you want to keep that secure, so you just put it inside a giant chess monster, or you have something you want to hide, and you don't want other people to find out. Either way, it indicates that there's something much more important about this item being in this chest than an, an average normal chest that you can just open without any issue. And it seems like this would make a lot of sense for why Sullivan wants to hide it then, because it's something he made. And if it's something he made, then of course he's going to keep it. Like, why? How could, how could he throw it out? <laughs> it's one of his creations. As we see, this is a guy who loves the things that he makes and keeping them and using them. So it may be a case of that and that he's like, okay, I don't need you anymore. You're not useful for me. So I'll throw you in this kind of chest, but uh, this kind of chest to keep you away from any hands. I don't want to have touching it, but you know what? I'm not going to just destroy it and get rid of it because you know what? I did make this. <laughs> so he's a little full of himself. Uh, yes. I think, I think we can say for certain that Sullivan is a little full of himself based on <laughs> later. I think we can, I think that's a very safe assumption when analyzing his character. Doesn't Yorshka say he proclaimed himself all father? Uh, no, he actually proclaims himself pontiff, and that's something pontiff, that we should talk about. Yeah. This is something that I'm going to get to in just a little bit. So next point that we should <laughs> note is that, okay, well, where did Sullivan live up until then? Because there's this interesting little manor we come upon, and it has a bonfire and everything, but it's sort of something you kind of pass through and you don't think about much. But it's very notable for various reasons. Um, it's called the desert. I think it's called the deserted manor in English, something to that effect. Distant manor. Distant manor. That's the one. Yeah. So you have the distant manor in English. In the Japanese, it's more like an abandoned uh, house that's on the outskirts. It sort of points out it's very specific there, and it's sort of emphasizing this. And it's very unique, actually, when you look at it, because it's like, okay, it's like the other aristocratic manors, but it's not on the same platform. It's actually on the platform right next to the sewer system where it outlets. Hmm. So that's very that's very odd. It's like, huh? Like, what aristocrat is living on the literal, literally outside the city limit, <laughs> and like on the same level as their shit? Like, that's a very. I know what's happening. It's because the prices of the houses is so high. Gotta compromise. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you the boring answer later on if you want. Why don't you give us the boring answer now? Because it's not like it's not interesting, like Loki is saying. It's just like a development reason. It's there. Mm -hmm. But one of the, but one of the ideas that I have in mind is that 
the idea of the house is to have it be positioned where you have it's not on the same level as the other aristocrats but it's someone who's still living in the city nicely and it makes sense for an outsider like Sullivan who sort of comes in he wasn't planned he wasn't expected and they sort of build a home for him outside the main city with it and lower below them but it's still something there it's also notable because it leads us directly to Irithyll dungeon where Sullivan does of course later a lot of his experiments and of course to the profane capital where Sullivan discovers the profane flame so the location also makes sense yeah yeah good old profane flame <laughs> Okay, Loki, I have to ask you. Okay, Loki. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in Dark Souls 3, if I choose to, like, not kindle the first flame in the end or whatever, there's still the profane flame that never goes out. That is apparently a thing. Though it's ar- though you could argue that the profane flame might be something entirely different from what we normal, quote-unquote, fire, just because it seems to be rooted more in the dark. So, again... I don't want to go too specific here because I'm still working out some things as well. Let me know when you work them out because <laughs> it's been bothering me for like three years now. <laughs> I don't blame you. I think it bothers most people. <laughs> okay. To get back to Richard and his boring answer, let's oh, let The boring say. answer is just that, you know, when you're coming into Irithyll and you go up through the sewer system into where you meet um, Sigvard. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was originally where the distant manor is now. They just shifted it. That's why it's called Distant Manor, because it was meant to be that manor with the paintings of the, like the paintings in it and the Silver Knights and the treasure chest. That was meant to be where that bonfire is now. And when they changed up the design of Irithyll, they just yoinked it over to the other side of the map and then just shoved another building. But it's still called Distant Manor. That's, that's, that's also what it is. That's, just bo- that's, that's the boring, boring answer. answer but yeah. It's pretty well, okay, because it was back when you could go into Irithyll from two different directions. And the idea is, if you came up from the lake, you would go through that manor, which is like it's where that bonfire is now, but it's the one with the paintings and the silver knights. And then that had a door that just led directly to where Sullivan is, so you wouldn't have to run through the rest of Irithyll. You only have to run through the rest of Irithyll if you approached it from the bridge. Yeah, and then they'd end up destroying the way to Smoldering Lake and make Yeah, them- yeah, they they changed up a lot. Yeah. So they ended up creating the new building and said, that's the distant manor now. Yeah, yeah, they just kept the name. It's sort of like how you can, um, like, um, Yorm's Bonfire shows, like, a different layout of that room. Because mm-hmm. it's from bef- before it was Yorm's. Yeah, it's just, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so mo- so then moving on, that we've talked about the distant manors, this location in relation to Sullivan. The it seems also, as we know, that eventually, whatever, like whether he was like interested or whether he venerated Gwendolyn or whatever his I- his ideas were at the time, things have obviously changed for Sullivan as he eventually seems to abandon the god in favor of other things. That seems to be triggered by the profane flame. Before that, though, I want to clarify one thing that I've seen as a theory that goes around is that Sullivan is the tree baby. That's referenced in some cut dialogue for the paint for the painting DLC because there's this. If I remember correctly, there's this. Uh, his spells are found near one of the tree women, and she's weeping. And then some people connect that weeping to the cut dialogue of a woman who's looking for her lost child. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, the Japanese script is for the most part gender neutral with the baby. Like, it uses a gender neutral you, but the final dialogue line actually uses a female you. A you. Oh, right, right. 
sorry, is that the the in game dialogue or the cut dialogue? The cut dialogue. There's there's no there's no nothing related to any any NPC in finding a lost child. At least to my mem- yeah, there isn't anything related to that in the actual yeah, game. Yeah. It's just the cut dialogue. Yeah, and people and I see a lot of people assume that I think there's even there's actually a point I think in the localized dialogue where it actually does say he, but this is before the final line that actually uses the f- explicitly female. Right. Um so I would say that theory is unlikely. <laughs> um I don't think Sullivan is related to the tree people or anything, or you at least can't use that as your basis for it. Because he does have tree wings. Or yeah, something. and he has like a tree design on him. On his um, his like mask has a big tree design. His well, his crown yeah, has like yeah. sort of this little like tree thing going. But a lot of nature imagery yeah, is used yeah. with Anne Orlando and things like that. And when it comes to Sullivan specifically and the tree wings, um, we see a lot of tree growths from human characters um, throughout the game. So due to the stag, presumably due to the stagnation and stuff that's occurring in the game, like right. that's a big theme seemingly happening. So you could argue that Sullivan's just going through a timely stagnation. That's like, hey, I can use this to fly now. Aww. Instead of plot armor, it's boss armor. Yes. See, uh-huh. <laughs> it's just useful for the villain. It's like I get a random power up. Sweet. <laughs> anyway. So now we get to talk about the whole presuming himself pontiff. So, like I said before, this is way before Aldrich comes into the picture. And we talk about this in the Deep podcast, so I'm not going to re-litigate that here. Um, Just so for people that are aware, like, the Japanese dialogue is very clear that when it talks about Sullivan locking up the, the god of the old royal family, Gwendolyn, the chief god... Um, and then eventually offering him up to Aldrich, it's very specific that these are two different events. It's, okay, he locks him up, up the chief god, and then later he ends up offering him up to the god eater. So this is why there's some this is why there's some possibly confusing timeline instances for people where it's like Sullivan seems to be working with Aldrich, but it seems like Aldrich came after him. So it's like, yes, that's in fact the case. There's no like weird contradictions in the timeline or anything here. It's just really poorly worded in the localization. Um, so now to 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 move on to the specifics there, as we know, um, Gwendolyn seems falls ill. A lot of people suspect foul play. I'm included among those. It's very convenient based on what happens afterwards. Because then, one, Gwendolyn decides, Yorshka, you're qualified to take over in my absence. I trust you. Which... Granted, I know you're a loving brother, Gwendolyn, but you you should know that, like, he must have really thought, okay, this is temporary. I can trust her to keep things running for, like, ten days without any issue. (laughs) Yeah. That didn't last for long, though, because Sullivan ends up locking away Gwendolyn. Yeah. And ends up, as Yorshka tells us, locks her up, too, and presumes himself pontiff. Now, one thing that people seem to always overlook is when when he says he's, I'm now the pope. I'm pope of what? Well, as we've just established, Gwendolyn is the chief god of the Way of White. The Way of White is here. Way of Light clerics were coming through here to the to the Cathedral of the Deep. So when Sullivan is declaring himself the Pope, he means that he is the Pope of the Way of White. He is now representing the Church, the chief god Gwendolyn. So 
similar to how the Vatican, the Catholic Church has th- this idea that the Pope is the leader of the, the is the Bishop of Rome. He's the Vicar of Christ, etc. He is God's representative on Earth. This seems to be the same idea going through with Sullivan. He is the God's representative. The All Father. He's sick. He's terribly ill. He's now gone and is resting in his home city of Anor Orla- in his this old ruins of Anor Orlando, his homeland, and he's appointed Sullivan. Me to be his representative. Ah, and I promise I will. I will fill out the All Father's will exactly as he needed, perfectly. You can trust me. Whatever I say is what God said. I promise. Aw, see, Sullivan's such a great guy, right? <laughs> yeah, such modesty. Eventually, Gwendolyn could get better, right? Why doesn't he just fight his way out and be like, no, 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 he's a pretender, he's lying, don't listen to him, he's not representing my will. Well, Yorshka was also locked up, as we talked about. And Gwendolyn doesn't necessarily know where Yorshka's being locked up right now. But we can kind of, from this sort of... I, I would never accuse Sullivana of using a mafia-styled uh, <laughs> threat against the god the, the god he's supposed to be representing as Pope. But that's exactly what I'm suggesting. Oh, that's very reborn of him. Yeah, so the idea would be is it seems to be of the case of Yorshka's locked up in the tower with that where where no one seems to know where she is. She's just sort of out of the picture. Gwendolyn is locked up in another location, and both seem to be under this under this kind of implicit threat, or probably made explicit, but the idea being is that okay, if you do anything, if you act out, if you do anything at all that could jeopardize that could sort of go against what Sullivan wants well, Yorshka and or Gwendolyn are going to die. So Yorshka and Gwendolyn are basically both kind of helpless in this situation because they're both being held hostage with the other at stake. And obviously, both are very, based on their what we inf- can see from their relationship, neither would ever want to cause harm to the other. So that seems to be the case. Now, Yorshka doesn't really know that Gwendolyn's already dead, of course. It's not like Sullivan's no. keeping her updated on what was happening play by play. Yeah. Um, but just to get, just to kind of give the understanding of what's going through these characters' minds when this stuff is happening. But that basically means that Gwendolyn is helpless. He's not going to do anything that could jeopardize Yorshka's safety, and he's no means of actually getting the word out there. So he's kind of just sort of supposed to sit tight and, like, let Sullivan become a tyrant. <laughs> and as we know, Sullivan ends up exterminating, he ends up seeming to work to exterminate a lot of the Darkmoon Blades. As we know, Cirrus even calls herself a former servant. She's no longer part of an active member of a group, because it seems like that group doesn't seem to really exist. Most of its members seem to have died as a result of uh, Sullivan's purge. The Painting Guardians seem to have also been a a, a casualty of this. We see some painting guardians seem to have attempted to make a rescue attempt and failed horribly with platforming. <laughs> yeah. Listen, listen, it's been a long time since Dark Souls 1, man. Yeah. They don't know how to climb. They don't know how to climb scaffolding anymore. They don't even know how to jump because you don't just press the X button. You got to do the weird circle thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're filthy casuals now. <laughs> anyway, so it seems to be a case that a lot of what. Um, Sullivan wanted to do was in fact to um, 
exterminate any dissidents. Because obviously, Darkmoon Blades, they're not really loyal to Sullivan, they're loyal to Gwendolyn specifically, and they might be more suspicious of, of him. Um, the Silver Knights are an interesting example, because the Silver Knights have always, rep- have always been loyal to An Orlando and the gods as an institution. They've always been sort of representative of the of being sort of the institutional enforcement to the gods. They're always portrayed that way in iconography and all that. However, um, what happens when officially, quote unquote, the, at least as far as you know publicly, your god has delegated someone else in order to be your quote unquote leader of the day to day affairs that are going on? Because you know Gwendolyn is just too ill; he can't talk to his he can't talk to his guards guarding him outside the building. Just, just so bad, so sick. Like you can't see him. You can't. Like you can't. I know. I know you're his personal bodyguards, but don't worry. You don't have to. We can, Sullivan can vouch for you. He yeah. Sullivan can tell you that Gwendolyn said that he, everything he says is gospel. Now, promise you. I think Sullivan was inspired by Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. You'd have to ask him. But, you know, I don't know if, if you want to fight him again, Sin. Richie, should we ask Sullivan one day what he was inspired by? Oh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay. Sorry, go on. <laughs> so then we end up seeing that Sullivan ends up instituting this sort of tyranny as a result. And the Silver Knights seem to be basically, they seem to just take Sullivan at his word. They respect the institutions that of the royalty and everything. So if a, re- a, a self-appoint, so if the, not self-appointed, because he's very obviously been appointed by the actual royalty... Um, says that, you know what, everything's fine, nothing's out of the ordinary, this is all the word of God, they'll accept it. Other uh, other organizations that are more loyal to Gwendolyn specifically might not be as um, uh, uh, trusting of Sullivan's word without hearing it from their god himself. So there might be a little bit more incentive to get rid of them. And as we know, Sullivan seems to have corrupted a lot of it. The clergy end up using sorcery. Um, His knights obviously end up using sorcery. Um, The profane flame, which he discovered, and seems to be the catalyst of all this. It seems like what happened was that Sullivan found the profane flame, a fire spawned from dark, and was... The way the Japanese words it is basically... He uh, an ambition also that wouldn't burn out also sort of sparked within Sullivan, and he got this idea that he could reach newer heights. He discovered magic that not even Gwendolyn and the gods were willing to go to, but he was. So he's now sort of starts plotting to kind of take power for himself and kind of expand his influence beyond where his current station is. But to go back to sort of the the corruption that he's done, we see all the various experiments. I'm not going to go over them. You can read my analysis for a lot of the details for these. But we see various examples like the slaves that he works with, he experiments on. They have the sort of dark hair and everything going with them, and they use some magic weapons, etc. The beasts, obviously, and the dark eyes that everyone's familiar with that they end up seeming to turn you into an actual monster. Um, He's also he's also looked at. Uh, creating sort of the 
what do they call the wretched? I think in Irithyll Dungeon, something the like wretches. that. The wretches. The wretches. Wretched. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the Japanese, these uh, the term is narisokonai, which is the same as. Um, I've talked about this term before in past podcasts. When talking about drag, those who fail to become things, yeah, those who yeah, fail yeah. to become dragons, usually in Dark Souls' case, um, this is another example. In this case, they fail to become Sith-like dragons. It seems like, um, and we see that it seems like he's experimented with sorcerers. And one interesting detail, actually, about that that's actually worth talking about is that um, the the what are they called in English the the simple ring, no simple gem, something like that. Yeah, I think. simple, yeah, simpleton. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's simple. It's meant to be simpleton, I think. I think, yeah. But so they the call I- it simple, yeah. But yeah, but the idea is basically that you're dumb, you're stupid. Um, and the purpose of that is because the gems have this, the gems seem to be like sorcery, kind of infused with sorcery, but like the power that they give actually increases your quote unquote focus, um, which is why they're connected to magic. But the reason why the, these wretches use them, the reason why these failed dragons use them is because they're trying to increase their, their quote unquote, their focus so they can draw out the power from their tailbones. And that power is of course the power of a dragon. It seems that there's so desperate to prove that they have they're not failures they're actually successes that they're actually willing to use these gems to kind of make up for the fact that they have limited focus and they can only draw out like a very small amount of a dragon's power from their tailbones so they try to be like okay well if we just kind of refill it with these gems constantly then we can constantly draw it out so therefore we're successes right so that seems to be their twisted logic and this is why it's said to be the logic of idiots <laughs> like these are the gems for morons yeah. <laughs> so, but besides, so like, so another interesting translation thing there. But um, we also see them study like maggots from the Cathedral of the Deep. Xanthos scholars are locked up in the dungeon. Like Sullivan seems to have a very broad interest. Like it's not like Sullivan just turned to the dark side and now he's he's a muahaha. He experiments with dark magic. He seems to be a guy who isn't really a lead. He isn't really aligned with the dark per se. He just likes lo- he likes studying magic, and that includes the dark. And obviously the dark is a very important power to have in your arsenal when you're not a uh, a mindless god worshiper. So for Sullivan, I think it's more that he's just not limited to whatever the Gwendolyn or whoever said, okay, you don't go there, don't go to dark sorcery. Oh no, he, you're just making Sullivan want to now go into dark sorcery. So is he kind of like Big Hat Logan? In some, like, if Big Hat Logan was more explicitly evil, yes, I guess. Because, well, one, because, like, actually, because, like, when you say that, the profane capital was very influenced by Logan. So, mm-hmm. like, a lot of Logan's teachings yeah. from before he got into Seath worship was um, inherited by the profane capital. So, it's possible that that might have had an influence on Sullivan and his own, uh, his own, uh, interest in studies in magic because one of the points being made and why the profane capital ends up creating the profane flame is that one of logan's spells the homing soul mass ends up being a little too close in concept to how um what do they call it in dark souls 3 allure or something like that no um it's something yearn not yearn no is it it's a dark i'm trying to re- it's Yearn in one, I think. No. It's called Pursuers in one, if I recall, which is close. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I thought you meant. Yeah, I thought you meant the one that attracted. No, no, no. no. I mean the one, the actual um, 
Yeah, the yeah. actual it's basically homing soul mass, but dark version, mechanically yeah, yeah, speaking. Yeah, 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 Manus yeah. Version, but yeah. yeah, the lore lore yeah. wise, the idea is that in concept, what Logan did was the idea of an autonomous soul that's able to act independently ends up being too close to what humanity does on its own naturally, and that functions the same way for Manus' spell. I, it's called affinity. That's the word. That's what oh, they right, call yeah, it in yeah. three. But the idea is that it's those who pursue the pursuers. So. The idea being that that might have had an influence on Sullivan and why he ends up dabbling, but it seems to be primarily the profane flame and its origins is what really got him. But yeah, he I guess you could think of him like an evil Logan in terms of he's like an evil sorcery character. He likes and studies magic. He's willing to do all types. He's in many ways, I think, closer to Aldia because Aldia also ended up in his under trying to understand the undead curse he ended up him and his lackeys ended up studying all manner of different magics um and right. like he went it's like okay let's go into like pyromancy you know let's get into like creating dragons oh but let's get so there's a lot of similarities there i think it's just a theme miyazaki has with his sorcery characters kind of like dabbling into like the unknown or the forbidden and end up kind of devolving into all manner of atrocities <laughs> but then when we talk about um the slaves again one of the specific things to talk about is the yorshka spear so before i talked about the idea of like the golden ritual staff being a sort of a a staff that was sort of gifted by sullivan to um the dark moon knights well the same can actually be said here with the yorshka spear because the spear is kind of weird it's another thing that was gifted or donated it's never the same terms are used for both the golden ritual spear and the yorshka spear and both don't mention who the gifter is curiously enough but it ends up being this item that the the earthal slaves they love it they love it because it apparently helps them get it helps them get some sleep (laughs) because when you use the what's the the weapon art and then you uh you hit enemies with it it ends up drain i think it drains focus right in the game mechanic wise but the idea is that it uses quote-unquote sleep magic and the idea is that if you drain someone's focus that makes them tired and that makes them sleepy that seems to be the idea it's drawing on right yeah so it's like oh i can't keep focus and eventually just kind of you collapse from exhaustion or 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 lose consciousness um but in in terms of how it works, it's like, well, that's kind of barbaric. You have to, like, physically hit and harm people in order to kind of use it. Like, that kind of seems, like, a little cruel for something that's supposed to be mercifully help them. And why was it donated to the Church of Yorshka? Because as we see, the Church of Yorshka is abandoned, and it's been abandoned for a while. You see it's overgrown. The slaves seem to dump leftover statues from Sullivan's propaganda, kind of, like, just haphazardly in the corner, and they drop, like, bags and stuff there, too. Like, it seems to just basically be like a little like uh makeshift storage area now um it's been otherwise forgotten so why do like who donates it well if we go with who donated the ritual stuff it may be like a, pr- a cruel prank by sullivan like he was like oh these, these poor these poor slaves we're working them to death here let's give them some sleep here go bash yourself with this oh my god damn sullivan that would be that would be pretty that would be pretty twisted. So that's something that yeah. I've that's also had in mind, and it fits his character from what we've seen with the other things that he's done to people. Um, 
Then there's the hounds, the hounds as we know, the hounds that they have these like human skulls, but they have these sort of dog-like bodies. Um, and when we're talking about hounds, we're talking about hunting dogs. That's like the literal um, Japanese for the word we're talking about. And it seems like they were intended to hunt thieves. We see them like feasting on corpses with coins and stuff. And other times, some nearby corpses also have like thief gear or things related to that. So it looks like the idea was that they had these sort of dogs to help patrol the streets along with the pontiff knights and all that. So again, Solomon seems to have all these weird inventions and creations that he then sort of repurposes to help him in enforcing his tyranny around the city. And it seems to be more or less ironclad. We also see a lot of propaganda with like the stat, like I mentioned before, you have these statues of silver knight squires. Again, I talked about the idea of the silver knight representing this sort of institutional loyalty. Like, you're loyal to Anne Orlando as the institution. So, regardless of who the individual leader is. Um, so, when you kind of take that, it's like Sullivan is sort of trying to use this propaganda, this imagery, by just, like, throwing these statues in these areas to kind of remind people, hey, you know what? You may not like it, but, you know, I am the legitimate ruler, once again, appointed by God. I am his representative. <laughs> so, like... This is all this is all sanctioned, baby. So they so that seems to be going through how he's sort of trying to legitimize it. This also seems to be the idea behind the dancer. Um, obviously, we've talked before the idea of the dancer being Guinevere's daughter. The idea of having the dancer be subservient to Sullivan, a mortal. So it's like you have like a god, or at least someone who is of divine blood and very closely related to the gods, or royal no less, is being subservient to the quote-unquote pontiff. Sort of, again, adds to this idea that Sullivan is, of course, he represents the chief god, and only the chief god could order the the daughter of his... um Elder, of his young of his yeah his elder sister to be put into this position so to speak so you kind of see how all of this is sort of synchronizing into creating this image that Sullivan he is ruler he is legit and he is in charge and he's going to be in charge for this foreseeable future um, this creates a rift, though, in the way of white it seems as large so like one of the things people talk about is of course Kareem is the it sort of replaced Thorland as at least the place that we always hear about when it comes to the Way of White. But there's obviously the Way of White in Irithyll. So what's going on? Do we have like this sort of dual thing where like Katha sort of is an influential figure here and she involves, and then Gwendolyn was supposed to be the one in Irithyll? I'm not exactly sure, but it looks like Kareem has taken prominence outside of Irithyll because of Sullivan. Because one of the things you notice is that um, whenever they talk about Kareem clergy, it's always referring to Catholic clergy. It's a Catholic nun. It's a Catholic archbishop. But the arch, but the deacons of the deep are actually bishops too, and the archdeacons are also archbishops. But these refer to actually um, their kanji are used for oftentimes um, non-Catholic, usually Protestant um, uh, clergymen. So there seems to be this actual in the actual script this divide between the Kareem Church and the Cathedral of the Deep, or to be more specific, to be more broad, the Irithyll Church, where Sullivan is sort of sending in obviously Aldrich, he sends in MacDonald and all these clergymen from Irithyll. So it looks like Sullivan's sort of takeover isn't exactly like being universal. Like he, it, not everyone is universally accepting. Oh, okay, this guy claims he's been appointed by God. I guess we all follow what he says now universally it seems to be kind of, i guess the best analogy i can use it's kind of like a pope anti-pope situation right. where Sullivan claims no i'm the pope 
But then perhaps it seems like the church in Kareem may not exactly believe that per se. Hmm. And Lothric seems to be caught in the middle with kind of balancing this by saying, like, you know, because obviously, as we know, Osiris and Sullivan seem to be working together on many occasions and seem to have a close relationship. But obviously, also, we see um, Kareem and Way of White clergy from uh from from Kareem actually continue to be there and helping assist with the fire linking. Irene is a good example of one of those attempts. So there's a lot of um like I get I don't know if it's necessary there's a lot of like sort of angry glaring at each other um that is going on. And part of that is why it's not devolved into open war is probably because Sullivan has the upper hand so far as you know if even if you don't believe Sullivan, it doesn't change the fact that he has the chief god hostage. <laughs> so it's like, what what are you gonna do? Like, are you gonna risk? Like, are you? It's like, it's like, it's kind of again that situation where are you gonna actually assault me? Because I will kill, I will kill your god. Like, how much is he worth to you? <laughs> yeah. So we're kind. Of, so again, it seems to be just this kind of like Velka slash Katha is like, listen. I don't believe you, and no one in my church is going to believe you. <laughs> and Sullivan's like, "Okay, fine. I, I, I'm, st- I, I, you know what, Gwendolyn? Am I in charge? Do it. <laughs> yes, of course I am. Oh my god, very good. <laughs> Just like does the little puppet thing and everything, like behind uh, like a wall. <laughs> but anyway, that seems to. But to uh, jokes aside, that seems to be the idea that's going on in terms of the politics. And Lothric seems to be sort of doing this little balancing act because Osiris kind of wanted to, whether he believed him or not, he seemed to cozy up with Sullivan for personal and perhaps more broadly um, uh, political reasons. And then Kareem on the other end is not very happy. And we can see maybe some hints that maybe Velka is trying to subvert Sullivan, but that's something that people can read in the analysis. That's not really relevant to hear. Um and then the last bit that we can really talk about when it comes to this is um, Lothric and the invasion. Um, so we find a lot of outrider knights around um, uh, Lothric. Um, several, one in the archives, one in the like. I think if I remember correctly, it's like in a storage area in yeah. the in the dra- in the dragon training grounds, and then the last is. Is there one or two? I think it's one more you find outside at the Undead Settlement, right? I don't yeah, think there's, there's one, another there's one. There's one on the way to the Cathedral of the Deep. There's one where the dragons are, and then there's one in the archives. Okay, so it is just three. I okay. think it's three. So there find might, those if there's three. a fourth, I can't remember it. I can't remember either. So, And then there's Vort and the Dancer. Um, so these Outrider Knights are specific, like, the Japanese is more specific, it's a foreign campaign, so it's specifically when you're sending someone out to fight a, a war in a foreign country or somewhere outside your borders, it's not like a, de- it's not like they're meant for defense or anything like that. Which is also probably why Ol- Sullivan sends them the eyes, because it's like, you know what, you're, you're going out there, you're either gonna die or you're gonna come back a beast. Yeah. <laughs> That's your options. <laughs> I don't really need, I don't really need you otherwise. Um. So it's so one of the things is that to point out is okay well what's go well if Sullivan is sort of the 
Pope of the Way of White, and he he's sort of acting on quote unquote behalf of Gwendolyn, and he's got this political relationship with Osiris. Well, why is he now sending soldiers there? Um, and my answer to that is, I think it's honestly just because Sullivan is trying to restore order. As we know, Lothric has gone through a bit of civil unrest, just a little bit. If all the beheaded knights around the area, all the beheaded knight corpses around the area, wasn't a clue. Um, and one of the big things that seems to be going on for um, him is that the the high wall, whatever that is, ends up emerging and causing Lothric to be on this tall mountain. The normal way to Lothric, the bridge, has been broken. Um, and one of the interesting details, of course, is the Batwing Demons. Now, as we know, the Batwing Demons in Dark Souls 1 were guards of Anne Orlando, they're servants of the gods, etc., etc., and they seem to have been, they've been tasked, for example, in the Ring City DLC to help ferry you across in Ring City. And it seems like what we see in Ring City is sort of a precedent for what happens in Lothric, because the same idea is that the Lothric has sort of been disconnected from the outside world because the way to and from it is broken. So, some of these demons from Anne Orlando have been sent, presumably by Sullivan at this point, to sort of get these messengers outside of Lothric. Well, these messengers were being sent out from Lothric with the banner, on with a with a message or a mission. Um, so, what is that mission? Well, presumably, considering that Sullivan, considering that Irithyll is going to the extent of sending these demons to reestablish contact, presumably this message is going to Irithyll. And what are they going to be hearing about? There's all this unrest, Osiris went mad, and he's been locked away, there's these weird angelic faith guys that are causing all these problems, Prince Lothric refuses to link the fire, <laughs> so now the Age of Dark could be happening. Now keep in mind, this is something Sullivan does not want to happen, because Sullivan is basing his power on Gwendolyn. So Gwendolyn... <laughs> So, and Gwendolyn is only relevant so long as the Age of Fire continues, because that's the entire thing that the Anne Orlando gods have always based their power and their religion on, and why they've managed to keep maintain their authority for so long. So, it's it's still in Sullivan's interest to cooperate as best as he can with everyone, whether it's Kareem or Lothric or whoever, in order to keep the fire lit for as long as possible, to keep the Age of Fire going and thus preserve Sullivan's power. So he has a personal vested interest. Well, there could be another reason, another personal investment, which is that if Sullivan's whole deal is he's speaking on behalf of the gods and the royal family of Lothric are descended from the gods, then he'd want to get rid of them because that would also delegitimize his authority. Oh, exactly. That's exact. That plays right into it, though, yeah. because again, we know that with Lothric, the entire royal family supposedly becoming—they're supposed to be representing the country where is the setting for the fire linking now, right? Yeah. So again, if they're not cooperating, and if one of their royals, who is supposed to have been who's supposed to be being groomed specifically for this purpose, is not cooperating, is in fact sabotaging that effort, then they've got to go. Like no matter what, you've got to go. So it seems like the end goal of all of this was in order to have to send these outrider knights in order to deal with the situation, all the chaos in Lothric, settle things down, deal with the prince, and restore things back to the status quo. So that way, the fire linking ritual continues and all that well it's like well okay well what's going on then with um and we could talk about like the deep and the, again the we talked about a lot of the deep ends of these in the podcast so i'm not going to talk about that i'm going to focus specifically on before aldrich comes into the picture okay 
Mm-hmm. So for as far as okay, so Sullivan before Aldrich or anything gets involved, he's still focused on that motivation. That makes a lot of sense on why he sends the dancer because the dancer seems to act as kind of like a commanding officer or something of that effect in terms of where she's positioned, how you encounter her, and things like that. And it makes sense you want to send like a royal, like a member of the royalty as like your representative, so you can kind of do diplomacy. You also see that she, um, Emma, and the church. Um, there, they may even be responsible for the messages, so it could be that there was some like sort of chatter going forward. But obviously, once the Pontiff Knights arrived, Emma is definitely not cooperating with them. At least, not um, in, at least privately, she's definitely not happy with their arrival. Because, as we know, she out she tells us that oh no, Lothric is not here. Nope, he's not here. There's there's no Lord of Cinder. There's no one you need to kill here, my friends. <laughs> There's definitely no one there, so please, you go out there and fight them. And then later, when she actually summons us back, she's actually saying, Hey, listen, can you try convincing Lothric? Please, tell him. Try to tell him to give up and actually help link the fire and do all this. Please. (laughs) So she's very much interested in not us just killing Lothric and taking his ashes. She's trying to protect him and try to make the circumstances, kind of like convince him to get him to be recant his little oh no i'm not gonna fire link mom that's a terrible idea i'm independent now (laughs) doesn't listen to the wet nurse um (laughs) but you kind of see though that this seems to be something that's on uh emma's mind and that she doesn't have a very favorable opinion of say vort like vort she talks as like i think the wretched vort the what is she i think he she call he call she calls him something to the effect of like a wretched watchdog, watchdog of the border valley, valley. Yeah. yeah so she has a very like low opinion of the boreal knights and we can also see that um in one instance if you don't she ends up dead both when she summons us and then the dancer shows up um did the dancer kill her? Maybe. Maybe the dancer figured out what she was intending. Because it seems like if you kill Emma before, she sort of lets out the goose that she doesn't want you to kill Lothric. She wants you to try to convince him out of this. Then the dancer seems to get very nasty. But if you don't have that conversation with her first, the dancer seems to come out in response to you killing Emma. So there's this possibility that the dancer's sort of lurking in the background, and she sort of kind of, like, got an ear in on things that are going on. And sort of, okay, when you want to kind of just send, um, if you want to just send uh, your undead out to go collect the cinders for the fire linky, okay, that's fine. But then when you're like, oh, wait, you're trying to convince this guy who's openly traitorous and, and, uh, and going against the will of Sullivan and the uh, gods in general, now you're going to try to just say, oh, let's just try to convince him to not do all this traitorous, heathenous, uh, heretical stuff. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. I think that's where there might be an issue with with uh, the dancer and the boreal knights outright, because it seems like they're there, to, they're there to hunt and kill all the enemies. And that would include Lothric, presumably. But that, I think, pretty much covers everything that I can talk about on Irithyll, at least broadly speaking. You can read a lot more on details, a lot more of my arguments and my theories in the full analysis, which will hopefully be linked into the video, in the, below the video. Mm-hmm. Cool. That was really awesome. Yes. <laughs> 
Alright, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I hope everyone, I hope it at least gets people stimulating and thinking about this, because a lot of what I'm talking about is not just sort of what the text will tell us or show us, but also how the world, how it all comes together in terms of the politics and the the the, the thoughts and the mentalities of the characters involved and how they're coming together. And how you can also maybe see how there's a lot of important details that got lost in localization. That's definitely hampered a lot of people's ability to try to understand the context of what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is one of our favorite podcasts yet with you, Loki. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Richie, do you want to do the outro? Well, that was Loki giving a very comprehensive overview of Irithyll and associated Irithylian things. <laughs> um, <laughs> Loki, if you just want to mention your social media again, in case people want to find you. Sure. Now you can find me on Twitter at Loki underscore DS. And on Discord, you can also find me uh, by that same name. Also, if you want to, you can also contact me via email if you prefer. That will be DarkSoulsLoki at gmail.com. And again, Loki is spelled L-O-K-E-Y. Yes. Super. Well, thank you so much for coming, Loki. Thanks so much. Thank everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it got everyone to be thinking about more of Dark Souls 3 lore. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.